I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. The most fascinating part of stories about Canadian ecosystems is when we come to understand just how delicate they are. This is how it goes. It's a cycle. We start by instinctively knowing that everything must exist in a balance, to completely forgetting that in a rush for money, to slowly, over decades, realizing that actually, if we don't find a way to get this back in balance, we are all screwed. Case in point, today, a small village that for, I was going to say decades, but it's more like centuries, has lived in harmony with the grizzly bears that have always prowled the forests and streams surrounding it. Until, of course, we learned that there were an awful lot of salmon in those streams and an awful lot of really valuable trees in the woods. And you know how this chapter of the story goes. But fast forward to today, 20 years after completely unbalancing this little ecosystem and endangering the bears, and the salmon, and the humans in the process. We are trying to relearn what never should have been forgotten and slowly move things back towards harmony. And in order to do that, we might have to knock ourselves a couple of pegs down the food chain. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jimmy Thompson is the managing editor of Capital Daily in Victoria, but the story we're talking about today he wrote for Beside Magazine. Hello, Jimmy. Hi. Why don't you start, um, as we often do when we're reporting on something that's off the beaten path, uh, with a bit of a geography lesson. Where are we headed today and where is it? So we're in a little village called Owakino, and that's at the, at the very end of Rivers Inlet, Rivers Inlet is, is tucked away inside of the central coast of BC, um, just north of the northern tip of Vancouver Island. Tell me a little bit uh, about the history of this place and its relationship to grizzlies, because this goes back decades, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the village goes back since time immemorial. It goes way, way, way back, um, as do a lot of the villages along the, along the coast. Um, but this story really kicks off in 1999. And there's there's important stuff before and after that, but let's focus on 1999 for now. In 1999, the people in Oakino had to kill eight grizzlies, uh, and conservation officers killed even more. So there were more than a dozen bears that were, that were put down that year because they were in the village. They were looking for food, uh, looking through people's garbages, breaking into their houses. They were really causing all kinds of havoc. And, and they were doing that because they were starving, and they were starving because there weren't enough salmon. The next obvious question is, what had happened to the salmon? Yeah, uh, so the salmon have declined all up and down the coast, and the, the reasons are are both very local and, and more global. Um, locally, in a lot of these places, for example, Rivers Inlet, 
um, there were canneries. I think there were 13 canneries in, in Rivers Inlet alone. And these were big operations. So they were catching as much fish as they possibly could um, and stuffing it into cans. And that went on for decades. So during that time, the, the numbers did come down quite a bit. But what was also happening um, upriver, actually, from, from Okino was logging on a huge, huge scale, uh, it, an absolutely unfathomable scale. There were two logging camps upriver and ab- above the lake um, that, the river, that, that feeds into the river that had their own airstrips. They were so huge. And this was an, uh, an earlier era of logging. I mean, people have issues with logging today, too. But back then, there was no concern for salmon spawning rivers or streams. Uh, there was no concern for, for protecting the, the trees around streams to make sure that they didn't wash away, things like that. So these two factors were, were really um, big ones. So the over-exploitation of the salmon and the, uh, the destruction of their, their spawning habitat upstream. Can you explain a little bit how logging can impact uh, salmon habitat and spawning? Yeah, uh, so there's a couple of factors. So first of all, you're taking away the trees, um, obviously. And when you take away the trees, you're, you're destabilizing the soil, you're stopping the, the uptake of water that trees uh, participate a lot in. Uh, so they sort of prevent the, the erosion of, this, of the soil around the streams. They also shade the stream, so they prevent it from overheating. A stream, you'll notice a stream in a, in a clear cut is a lot warmer than a stream and a lot siltier and muddier than a stream in the middle of a forest. The other way that, that logging can impact it is just directly. They're, they're driving trucks and equipment through these streams. Now, I should specify that today there are a lot more rules around what you can do around streams, and it's not always followed, and it's not always perfect, and people say there should be more, but there are now rules and the and and they are in in general they are followed so how badly were uh the salmon populations decimated in order to lead to the bears becoming as dangerous uh, as they did back then this is a system that was used to possibly millions of salmon um coming back every year and and there are four different runs um but the sockeye alone would have been millions there the i say in the story it was the kind of of uh, of run that legends are made of. The people said that that old cliche, you know, you could walk across the river on the backs of the salmon, um, and I I don't doubt it. it. It sounds like it was a, an incredible run, but by 1999, it was it was a few thousand. So it was this decline of of you know 99 percent kind of thing. Wow. Um, it started to recover in recent years, but it, it it's never it hasn't gotten back. So what was it like? You talked to. Um a number of these people who who still live in the village today, who lived through that time, um, what was it like living in a village when you know the traditionally cohabitable arrangement between humans and bears was so disrupted? Yeah, I, I talked to one man in particular. I, well, I talked to a lot of people when I was in the village um, in in September. But one man that I, I met before I went there, actually, his name's Frank Hanus, and uh, people call him Fug. And Fug was the kind of guy who was uh, in, in the village kind of known for his, um, I mean, toughness maybe or, 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 or sort of handiness. Um, a lot of people in, in that community are, are quite, quite tough and quite handy, but he in particular, I think. And he was charged essentially with, with disposing of these bears that came into the village. So he, he himself shot eight of them. Um, and that was really traumatic for him. Th- these are people that had coexisted with the bears for millennia 
Um, but in their own lives, their, their whole lives, they had grown up around the bears and, and they knew how to behave around them and, and how to sort of leave them to themselves. They had dogs. They still have dogs in the community that kind of roam around and, and are the, the first warning system when there's a bear in the community. You know, they, they've kind of developed these very sophisticated means of coexisting with the bears. Uh, so it was a real disruption and a real um, trauma that year to, to have that to have to kill the bears and and to know that that balance had been thrown so far out of whack. How did it start to improve? Um, and when? Like, was it was it a reaction immediately after 1999 that like something needs to be done because this is dangerous, or was it a gradual thing? I wouldn't say that anything particular changed in 1999. I don't think that it was so much that you know they, they saw how bad it had gotten and suddenly some major practice was changed and and things got better. I think that it, there have been improvements that have been made, um, and the logging by then had mostly stopped uh, upriver above Owakino Lake. But aside from you know fish conservation policy, which is set by the government, there's not really much they can do. Uh, but that's actually where the story gets interesting today. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. Right. So what's happening now? Right now, the people of Ookino First Nation are trying to figure out how much salmon the bears need. And that would mean knowing um, how much fish the people can take, because you're, you're setting allocations right now based on how much is needed to spawn and then how much is needed or how, how much people are allowed to take based on that. This would sort of put people a couple of pegs lower on the priority list. So it'd be how much the bears need and, and, the, and the ecosystem. And then below that, it would be how much there is needed for spawning, and then it would be how much is needed for for people. So you'd have sort of a a, a much more balanced take on on the the amount of salmon that can be fished. So has the government gotten behind um, this new approach that puts the grizzlies' needs first? Where does it stand? As far as I know, the government is not engaged in this process. The nation, I believe, is hoping that they will be able to then bring that to the government and, and say, look, you can't reopen this fishery because they're afraid that the government will reopen the fishery for commercial fishing. Right. Um, and so I guess the idea is there, the science is still in the early stages. So um, there's nothing been published on this yet, but they are hoping that they'll be able to bring this, I think, to the government and, and say, you need to consider the needs of the ecosystem. What's it like there now in terms of uh, the villagers' relationship with the bears? You spent some time there. Yeah, when I was there, um, there was one one evening I had been really desperate to get pictures of the bears for obvious reasons. I'm there as a journalist and I wasn't sent a photographer with me. I was there on my own um, and I really needed to get some pictures of the bears. So I was begging people to take me out to the dump. Because the bears reliably come to the dump every, pretty much every evening. It's a reliable source of food for them. Unfortunately, you know, the, the forest hasn't really recovered in the area around Owakino. It's, it's what they call a, um, a green desert. 
So it's trees of all the same age, and they block out the sun, and there's nothing growing below. There's no berries, nothing like that. So the dump around Okino is actually one of the few places that the bears know they'll be able to reliably get food. So I went out there, and and I saw the fence that they had built. Uh, the fence was had been an electric fence, but the bears just kind of pawed right through it. They they weren't bothered at all. Um, they tore it open like a like a can of sardines. And so I think the, bear, the the fence had lasted about three days and then someone stole the batteries. So it's no longer electric and it's no longer really a fence. Um, so the bears have gotten very used to being able to go in into the dump and get food. And the bears still do come into town. The night, One of the nights that I was there, a bear did come through town. Unfortunately, I wasn't awake to see it um, or maybe fortunately, who knows. But people are, are still on alert all the time for bears. When I was leaving the lodge, um, where I was staying, the person who manages the lodge, Judy, um, she gave me a, a, a bear banger, which is kind of like a, a pen with an explosive tip at the end, and you you kind of flick the tip off the end, and and it ex- it it makes a big bang. Um, she gave me one of those to protect myself, and and of course this other man, um, Johnny Johnson, who has been mauled by a bear, kind of just laughed at it. He said, "That's not going to scare them anymore. They they don't." They don't get scared easily around this around this this part of town. This isn't the wild where where they've never seen a person before. These these bears are very used to people and cars and guns and bear bangers and everything. What is it like um, for those folks to live amongst an animal that has been so dangerous to them in the past, um, and yet still make the decision to put that animal first in making conservation plans? I mean, to me, that's the most fascinating thing about this story because you know to your point those bears can be incredibly dangerous especially after they've become used to humans um and yet these villagers are are going out of their way to make sure that the population is supported yeah you know i can't speak for them um but what i can say is that it, it appears that the people of okino have a, a really deep connection with um, the landscape around them that has supported them for so long uh, it's so ingrained in their culture the, there, there's one man, George Johnson. I was actually in, in the community three years ago, I believe, three or four years ago, and he was just starting this poll. And when I visited this last summer, he was just finishing it. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it starts with a bear at the very bottom. And at the top, and, and just above that, I believe, is a sea lion. And then there's a person. And then at the top, there's this eagle with, a, with, with these big spread wings. And it, it's, the, the pole is just gorgeous. And in each of the, the the hands or talons or claws of the of the people or the mouth in the case of the sea lion, there's one salmon, and that represents the, the different salmon, the different seasons. But to me, it also represents the the allocation that they have in mind. You know that that, that this is just fair that people should take what they need and leave enough for the other uh, parts of the of the forest. And what's not included in this pole is the wood that the pole is made of. Um, the, the the trees and the uh, forests around around Oakino and all up and down the coast are incredibly dependent on salmon. Uh, there was a, there's a famous study by Tom Reimkin from UVic from maybe the I think 1990s that found that about 80 percent of the nitrogen, up to 80 percent of the nitrogen in these trees, can have come from the deep sea. That gets there through the salmon. The, it, it's it's a reversing of the normal flow of nutrients. You know, you think about water falling on the forest, washing away the nutrients downstream into the ocean. The salmon are the thing that brings it back and and completes that cycle. So 
the salmon when they when the, those numbers were depleted, that actually impoverished the entire forest. Not just the salmon, or not not just the bears, not just the people. It, it impoverished the trees and the salmon berries and the ferns and all, all these things that make a, a, a rainforest a rainforest. So this this system is incredibly interconnected. And without the salmon, without a healthy salmon population, that that health is totally thrown out of whack. So what do the Owakino people need now to maintain that balance? Do they need the government to act on their research when it's done? Do they need the cannery to stay closed? Do they just need all industry to stay the hell away for a while and let things recover? I think what, what the, the Owakino would say, and I once again, I, I can't speak for them, but I did speak to a number of them when I was there and, and since... I think that what they would say is that they they want the ability to determine what that threshold is. You know, when 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 you reopen it to uh, commercial fisheries or not at all, um, and what kind of logging happens and and how that happens. I think it's acknowledging that control over these resources from the federal and provincial governments has been an abject failure. I, I don't think that you could look at the numbers of of salmon on the coast and and say anything different. I hope that uh, this entire delicate ecosystem can stay in balance. Thanks for talking us through it, Jimmy. Uh, thanks for having me on. Jimmy Thompson of Capital Daily on his piece in B-Side Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Find all of our podcasts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. And of course, you can write to us anytime. The Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.